Hi, this is Dan. And this is Joe. And this is Enough Room. So, <laughs> I guess you could say, okay, Alicia, it's the Old Testament. Uh, most of us don't really care about that anymore. Um, although, as an Adventist, I'll <laughs> say no. <laughs> <laughs> I will not eat shellfish. Um, <laughs> but if we if we were to come into um, the New Testament, for example, um, how do we then approach what's going on with Paul? Because, and maybe it's just the version of the Bible I'm reading, but it seems to be very clear when he lists off these vices um homosexuality makes the list so um the vice lists um is what those there's two there's two passages um that are called vice lists and again this is something that was pretty common within uh, greek or roman rather culture um and stoic understandings of hey, these are the things that are virtuous um and these are the things that are you know, not virtuous. Um, and so Paul had some of these lists as well. One is in first Corinthians six verses nine to 11. And the other is in first Timothy eight through 11, I believe first Timothy one, eight through 11. Um, at any rate, there are two lists of, uh, of vices that Paul gives and he gives all kinds of things. So, uh, there's a word that is often translated, homosexuality or homosexuals or men who have sex with men an important thing to understand is that none of these translations really showed up until 1946 was the first translation that used the word um that used the word homosexual um, if you look at older translations it'll say things like uh, abusers of mankind or um, effeminate. So what's going on? Did, did, did gay people just suddenly pop up in 1946? And uh, before that, we didn't really know what that meant. This is not, okay, this does not happen very often in the Bible. All right, let me say this clearly. This is not a common experience and you shouldn't feel like every text of the Bible you read, this is what's happening, but they are reading their theology into this text. Um, it says um, one of the vices is men who practice homosexuality. Um, and that is just kind of where evangelicals are right now, you know, talk about practicing, a practicing homosexual. It wasn't, oh, it's not language from Paul's day. <laughs> it's, um, it's just not. Um, yeah. And then in first Timothy one 10, it says, uh, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers. So it's just like a list of sins, um, a list of vices. It's interesting that here in the English Standard Version, it's actually hard to tell because of how they kind of just squished things together. There's two words that we focus on in the Greek text here. And this this is just one of those times, you know, 99% of the time, the original language of the Bible can add color, texture, pop to the text, but it doesn't really change the way you understand the meaning of the text. Mm. 99% of the times, this is one of those few times when you just have to get into the original language because you're just not going to uh, really be able to understand 
what we do know and what we don't know about the text. And one of the most common reasons why that becomes really important is when the words being used are something called hapex legomena. You don't need to know that. <laughs> but when the words that are being used are like almost never used, they're just very rare words. And then translation becomes extremely difficult because you don't have comparison texts to figure out what the meaning of the words are. Mm. So um, it, the translation becomes extremely difficult and understanding um, the issues at play and the range of possible meanings becomes extremely difficult. Uh, this is why you don't really find this kind of men who practice homosexuality or homosexuals or men who have sex with men. Like this is why you don't really find these translations until 1946 uh, is because it's a difficult text and they translators were trying to contextualize for the modern time. And um, there's a whole Kathy Baldock is doing some work on this and she has a book coming out on this about how this happened. And it's, like a must read and there's a documentary coming out too. the documentary is called 1946 mm. and the book is called um, forging a sacred weapon. And um, it's just like a must read to understand how the word homosexuality got in our Bibles in the first place. So anyways, so let's, let's, let's get to the um, let's get to the Greek words and let's talk about it a little bit. I'm, I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. <laughs> um, the word that appears in both of these two texts is arsenokoitos, and it's a combination of two Greek words that mean man and like to lie or to bed. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that is obviously like a sexual euphemism um, in some cases. So, um, so a lot of scholars believe that this word is actually, and I used to believe this as well, a reference back to Leviticus chapter 18, because both of those words appear in Leviticus chapter 18. Mm -hmm. um, they don't quite appear actually the way you would expect a compound word based on that text to appear, because you would expect it to be like it would appear as like a verb and the direct object of that verb or a noun in the verb. So like a man better, like a man who's betting men or something like mm -hmm. that. And they don't, it's just, just syntactically, they don't quite show up like that. So that's, that's one issue. Um, but, but both of these words or forms of these words do show up in the Greek translation of Leviticus 18. The big problem though, with saying we definitely know that Paul was referencing Leviticus 18 here is a very simple one. And that's that, you just can't know for sure that you understand the meaning of a word based on um, a compound word based on the two words that compose that compound word. Mm. Like you just, you can't know. The only way to confidently know that you're defining a word correctly is if you can find it in context and, and know that this is how that word is used. Mm. Because compound words can often mean something different than you might expect them to mean, um, just because of how language works. Mm. You know, you just you put something together, and um, and it, it might refer to a specific situation. Um, this could be particularly true in Greek and Roman culture, because sex was also used, often used as a metaphor for all kinds of exploitation. 
we do this some in our culture. Like if you use an F bomb to say, you know, that could say that someone F'd you over or something like that. Um, Mm. That would be, you know, something we do, but for them, it was much more graphic, Mm. much more common because they're, they're thinking about dominance of one person over another person was very closely tied in with their thinking about sex. Mm. So um, it's it's not outside of the realm of possibility to think that this could have been used in another way. Mm. Now, um, we just don't know. And that's that's like the least satisfying possible answer you could have to any question is I don't know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I honestly, it's it seemed easier and simpler before to just say, OK, sure, that refers to Leviticus 18. Here's what Leviticus 18 means, you know. Um, Paul was seeing in Roman culture the same type of exploitation and dominance and shaming other people in order to consolidate your own power. Um, He was seeing that same kind of thing happening in Roman culture that was happening in the Old Testament times in Canaan, and that's what he was referring to. And that's a very easy thing to do, and those things were definitely happening in Rome, and that all makes sense. Um, I just, I, I want to really be as true to what I think is, is true as I possibly can be. And the truth is, we don't know with 100% certainty what this word means. Mm. Paul uses it twice. We have no example in any other literature of the word being used, any contemporaries of Paul. When it's used later, much later, it's used either just because it's literally repeating the words of Paul in these two verses or because it's referring to financial exploitation hmm. and the, the proximity of the text to other um, it, the proximity of the text in the vice list it, it could be either one it could be either uh, a sexual fornication or a sexual sin or it could be financial exploitation and later it's used to talk about financial exploitation so I mean we don't actually know but I I don't see a problem for affirming theology with either one of these approaches. Mm. But there's another word as well that shows up closely related um, to our, our synecoitites in 1 Corinthians 6 9. And that word is malakoi. That word, on the other hand, we do know what that word means. We have lots and lots of examples of that word in Roman culture. So that word has to do with a specific value that is placed on men and masculinity and dominance. So mm. um, oftentimes I've seen, you know, conservatives were say, well, a Malakoy was a man who had sex with other men. This is simply not what the word meant. I don't know how else to get around that. Um, I've heard people say that these two words together are like a, um, are like a a top and a bottom. Mm. That's simply not Mm. what these words meant. Mm. That's simply not the meaning of the word. Um, There was a word for men who have sex only with men. um, But that, that was within, that was a Greek word. But scholars don't think that such people actually even existed. (laughs) (laughs) Like that it was more of like a boogeyman kind of character within Roman culture, which also tells you that Roman culture was not a good place to be gay Mm. either, as um, opposed to, you know, sometimes characterizations we hear of Roman culture, but it wasn't. So an Arsenicoitas was was basically a man who was weak, who was 
uh, you know, women were seen in a negative light, obviously. And a man who was like a woman was morally weak. He was of a lower social class. He might have been enslaved. He had no self-control. He, he indulged in all kinds of things. If he was wealthy and he was a sir, accused of being an arsenicoitos, especially, he probably had a lot of luxuries. He slept on a really soft bed. He spent too much money on food and ate too much food. And he had too much sex. And he was just as likely to have too much sex with women as to have too much sex with men. Mm. Because they didn't really see... Romans didn't think of sex in terms of straight sex and gay sex. They thought of it in terms of dominant sex and passive sex. So he could be having uh, passive sex, which would most likely be with a man because more men were dominant. But it could also a man could also take a passive role in sex with a woman. Um, or maybe he just was showing his lack of self-control and his overindulgence in having sex with lots and lots of women. In fact, that might even be more likely than that he had sex with with lots and lots of men or any men at all uh, he might have just indulged in prostitutes too much and spent all of his money that way like these are the things that they would think of an arsenicoitos and it was basically a man who was effeminate mm. now you could see <laughs> uh you could see why translators would have a difficult time with that mm. but um and and much of that is because of frankly feminism i mean let's just Let's, let, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Mm. Feminism started saying women are equal. And previous translations had translated this in First in Corinthians to say effeminate. Yeah. To say that one of the things you could go to hell for was being effeminate. And, and that's deeply rooted in misogyny, mm. right? So this becomes a problem for translators. How do we understand this? And this becomes a problem for understanding Paul, too. Is Paul being a misogynist? Mm. Well, I do take some heart in the fact that Paul did not buy into all of these Roman values. Because one thing that an, um, a Malakoy would definitely, definitely not do is he would not allow himself to be physically assaulted by anyone. Because a, a Roman male citizen was supposed to be in control of his person and his body at all times. No one could assault him. No one could dominate him. Mm. He, he always had self-possession and strength and control. But Paul allowed himself to be beaten. And he did so even though knowing he was a Roman citizen. And he told everybody about it all the time. This is extremely outside of that paradigm mm. of Roman thinking about gender and about what a man should be. Mm. Paul was voluntarily putting himself in a position to be called a Malakoy, according to Roman culture, mm. by allowing himself to be beaten. So so I think there's a level of complexity there that we can't just say, you know, Paul was being a misogynist and he was just buying into this Roman values. Like there's a level of complexity here. I think if if I were to try to choose the best translation for this word, I would I would say maybe it's somebody who lacks control or somebody who's highly indulgent. Um, mm. or something like that, I think would be probably more of the idea that Paul's getting at, but that he was getting at that this is somebody who has sex with men. It, it's just not supported. Um, you know, I would just like for someone to show me three places where that word is used in that way um, within the context to demonstrate to me that that's what that word means. I don't think you could even find one. Mm. Mm. I think it's only natural, especially for someone like myself, um, having grown up with the church, is to look for 
texts or specific things in the Bible that I can use as, you know, proof texts to mm. go, aha, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is why I can be gay and flamboyant. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm learning more and more. And as I read more and more through your book, the Bible isn't always that straightforward in terms of the text. And it's probably, I guess, maybe my laziness <laughs> coming through um, because it's supposed to challenge me to discover more and start this conversation with God um, so that I may learn more about him and his will for me. Um, and I wonder if that's something we can incorporate into our conversations as well as we move forward is for Tom or Jenny or whoever's listening, um, for them, how can they listen to this and then go forth and be mm-hmm. like, you know, I, yeah, I don't have a proof text to say thou shalt be gay, but I am confident that God is leading mm. here and he's showing me mm. um, principles that can directly impact how I not only express my sexuality, but also love others at the same time. Yeah, part of the issue is what we've been talking about this whole time, actually, is for the most part, except for a little bit about gender and Genesis, but we've been talking about, hey, people say the Bible says this isn't okay, but it doesn't actually say it's not okay. There's not a prohibition here. That's not the same as saying that there's a permission here. And even if you take away all the prohibitions, you're still left with an ethical question. And that's that's the other side of what you know we're we're getting to with affirming theology um, that we need to talk about as well. Which, when you get to the chapter on Gentiles in Acts 15 as well as the last chapter about slavery, you'll see how we get there. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a teaser. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Enough Room. We'll be dropping another episode in about a week's time. So until then, follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook. Till next time. Bye.